Life Audio. You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast. I'm John Stonge, and I'm glad you're here with us this week. We're currently studying the Gospel of Mark together and learning more about the life, ministry, and miracles of Jesus. We'll jump into today's teaching in just a moment, but first, let's hear a quick word from the sponsors of today's episode. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Now, this morning, we're continuing our look at the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 30 this morning. We're going to read in just a moment down to verse 44, and we're going to be talking about this concept of hunger and the fact that our deepest hunger can only be satisfied by Jesus. Now, I'll tell you ahead of time, the portion of Scripture we're about to read together, in my estimation, is one of the best-known miracles of Jesus one of the most widely known. But it's interesting when you look at it, because I think a lot of times people are familiar with this miracle, but not exactly familiar with what Jesus was trying to teach through it. So again, we're in Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 30, and we're going to look at what this scripture reveals to us today. In Mark 6, verse 30, it says this, "'The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together today. Lord, we're grateful for the things that you give us access to, the things that you allow us to read about and learn about, and the things that you allow us to know as we look at a portion of Scripture like this. Lord, we're grateful for it, and we're just thankful for the fact that that in the midst of these miracles, as these things were being accomplished through your Son, there are deeper level truths that are being communicated. And Lord, we know that it's very easy to look at a portion of Scripture like this and stay very surface, very surface level in our thinking. But Lord, we know that that's not your desire. Your desire is that we understand some of the deeper implications and applications of a a chapter like this or a portion of Scripture in the midst of this chapter. So, Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us right now, that you'd help us to understand what we're reading, and that by your grace we'd grow in our walk with you. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the start of a new year. We're still in the midst of the first couple weeks of the new year, and the start of a new year is usually one of those times of of year where people decide, you know, I'm going to make a few changes. And uh, you don't have to call out what the changes are, but have any of us decided, you know what, I have a goal, I'm going to make some changes this year, and and, uh, you've been carrying those things out? You've been doing that so far? Then there's a variety of things that people decide, no, I'm going to change that in this coming year. I have a few things on my list, but I think one of the primary changes that most adults seem to make at this time of year is a change to their diet. And I bet you there's some of us that have tried to make some changes to our diet. I hope it lasts a long time. At the second week of the year, most people only make it to week three, all right? So I'm rooting for you, if that's one of the changes you're making, that you make it past week three. But it's basically like you end one year with all the excesses of just holiday eating and everything that goes along with that, and then we promise ourselves, all right, come January. I'm going to start eating a lot better. And I I tend to make that promise to myself as well. And when I look at the patterns of my own eating habits, I usually start each year eating relatively well and then end each year exercising much less caution and then saying, all right, I got to fix that. I'm probably not alone in that pattern. But here's an interesting thing about the era in which we live and the way that affects the way we eat. Living in the era in which we live where food can be found abundantly and where Food could be acquired in its abundance. Food goes from being a necessity to being a luxury to eventually becoming a vice in many respects. And it becomes a vice when we start using it to medicate our emotions. That's when we start getting in trouble with food. When we start using food to medicate how we feel emotionally, it becomes a vice when we think that food can satisfy the deeper longing of our souls. And the Bible speaks of, when the Bible's speaking of, uh, like, our longings, it oftentimes speaks of our longings like a hunger. It uses this analogy of a hunger to describe the deeper level things that we, that we desire. Sometimes it also describes those deeper longings as a thirst. So sometimes you'll see the words hunger and thirst used in Scripture to describe some of those things we really wrestle with deep inside. And there are many examples throughout Scripture of the Lord using food and using water to illustrate some of those deeper level spiritual needs as well. And again, one of the most well-known portions of Scripture that does this is found in Mark chapter 6, the portion of Scripture we just read together, starting with verse 30. And here you have Jesus miraculously feeding thousands of people with five loaves and two fishes. But leading up to that event, Christ's apostles they had been involved in another task. 
And if you remember from when we were looking earlier in the scriptures in this chapter, it tells us that they were going about preaching and teaching. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, it reminds us now that they've come back to that. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So they're at this spot now, they've returned to Jesus, and they're starting to tell him all that they've done and taught. So now prior to feeding this, 5, 000, this group of 5,000 plus, you have the apostles being sent out into all kinds of villages in the region. Scripture tells us that they traveled in pairs, and they were preaching the message of repentance. They were also healing the sick, which must have been an amazing thing even for them as they were practicing this. But Scripture tells us that Jesus gave them the authority to do so. They were also casting out demons. So basically, the things that they had been seeing Jesus do up to this point, he gave them the authority to do similar things as they were going out into the villages. And they go out two by two, proclaiming the message of the gospel, teaching people about the message of repentance. And as their, mes- as their mission concluded here, they returned to Jesus in Capernaum, and they tell him all about it. They're talking all about it. I'm guessing these must have been very enjoyable conversations. You know, and I think about what those conversations must have been like, because they've been away from each other for a little bit. They've all now had a little bit of a taste of some deeper level ministry activity. And uh, I think those conversations are probably very interesting. I think they're probably very entertaining. Um, I, I'm sure many of you can pro- probably attest to this, but if you've ever been in a spot where you have been teaching, whether it be teaching in your home or teaching in a classroom or teaching here at the church, you often end up with some either edifying stories or very entertaining stories when you dare to teach other people. Interesting things come from those moments, and sometimes entertaining things come from those moments. Many of you know on on Friday nights, my wife and I, we carve off time each week for date night. Friday night's date night, we've been doing that for years, but we purposely go to a place that is almost an hour away. And even though there are plenty of restaurants we like locally, but we found a place we really like, it's almost an hour away. And one of our big reasons for traveling almost an hour on Friday nights is because it gives us the opportunity to talk. When you're in a car alone, nothing else to do, it, it invites conversation. And we like that as part of our pattern. And one of the things that we often talk about is we just kind of decompress the week and talk about the week. And because many of my responsibilities here at the church and at the university involve teaching, I'm often telling her stories about things that have taken place either at the church or at the college, uh, something about a teaching nature. And she's involved in teaching in both places as well. And so sometimes she's telling me stories about teaching here at the church or teaching over uh, at, at the university. And it's a nice way to conclude our week with conversation as we're talking about these things. And here you have the apostles doing this with Jesus. And I think it's very interesting. When you look at verse 30 here, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And I look at that and I think, wouldn't it be also interesting just generally for us as Christians, if at the end of every day, and you probably do this as you go to bed at night, you probably take a moment to pray. Many people do. I certainly pray before I I fall asleep. But wouldn't it be kind of an interesting way to end our day to just come before the Lord and say, Lord, here's everything I did and said over the course of the day. Wouldn't that be an interesting way to have a conversation? Lord, here's an, here's an account for everything I, I taught and everything I did over the course of this day. I imagine that would be a, an opportunity for us to receive some guidance. I also imagine that would be an opportunity for good accountability as well if we ended every day with a conversation like the apostles were having with Jesus 
But here they're telling him, Lord, Lord, this is everything we did and everything we taught while you sent us out into the villages to go and and teach people. And I imagine it was a very enjoyable conversation. But as most of us can affirm, especially when you think about our day-to-day responsibilities and our day-to-day activities, serving people in any capacity, whatever capacity you're serving people in, whether it's as a parent, whether it's as a teacher or a leader or someone who meets other important needs, serving people can be exhausting. Is there anyone that would argue that fact? Serving people at times can be exhausting. And so as the disciples are telling Jesus what they've done, and as Jesus is just thinking through all the things that they've done together, he recognizes that his disciples are at a a spot where they need a break. They need a break. And so he suggests that they take a brief break together, a brief rest. And the Scripture tells us when you get into verse 31 and verse 32, it says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. I love that portion of Scripture, and I love the principle that Jesus teaches in this passage. And I think it's a principle that can be rather challenging for some of us to actually put into practice, but it's very necessary. Here you have Jesus encouraging his disciples to find a little time away from the people that they were regularly serving so that they could find a little rest. And I'm curious, for us, is this a pattern that we've adopted? Is this a pattern or a practice that's part of our our weekly or our monthly or our yearly schedule where we take some time and just block it off for a little rest. And here Jesus is encouraging the apostles. He's saying, listen, just carve out some time with me now. Now is time for rest. You don't even have time to eat. Let's just take a little rest. I have to confess to you, and some of you I probably already told this before, but when I first became a pastor, I used to mistakenly believe that it was virtuous not to take rests. I had this thought in my head that it was more virtuous not to rest And uh, it didn't take me very long to realize that that's not really a wise approach to life, right? Uh, I quickly learned that that's actually a recipe, I think, for bitterness in ministry. I also think that that's a recipe for hurt feelings at home. And so I remember early in my ministry, I remember being at, we were in the kitchen, I started talking to Andrea about some of these things. I said, you know, I need to do a better job of how I'm carving up my weekly schedule and our yearly schedule because I don't feel like I'm, I'm doing a very good job as far as hitting the pause button. And she said, okay, but she also laughed at the time because she didn't believe that I would actually do it. She's like, I, don't, I, I believe that you want to do it, but I don't believe that you will actually do it. But I remember during that period of time figuring out a better way to schedule day-to-day life and schedule my weekly responsibilities. And so I started carving out a pattern of well-defined breaks at certain points, and I just kind of made a promise to my family that I would honor those breaks. Breaks that would happen at certain points of a week, and breaks that would happen at certain points of the year. And I had this thought initially that it was going to result in getting less done. And I was a little concerned by that, but I was actually amazed that it actually contributed to more productivity, not less. So that was kind of ironic in my mind, And I was also grateful that in doing so, one of the things that was communicated to me by my family, and this is back when my kids were very little, but my wife primarily communicated this, 
the, it, it was of value to them to be reminded through that weekly schedule and through those moments where I'd hit the pause button that they were my top priority. That was an important thing in our household, and that's something that now years have gone by, and um, I have received a lot of positive feedback about that. So I'm glad that's something the Lord got in my head during that period of time. And I have to say, now that all my children are adults, and by the way, I'm still coping with the fact that they're all adults, the fact that my youngest just turned 18. You realize that my children could vote for your president? (laughs) The fact that all four of my kids are adults. But I, I, I could tell you, I can promise you now that they're at that season of life and pretty much, you know, they don't require much from us at this stage and in some respects. But I promise you, I do not regret the time that I blocked off for them when they were young. I do not regret it. I'm really, really glad I did it. And here you have Jesus looking at the disciples and saying, guys, you need a break. You've been doing a whole bunch of stuff. I've been asking you to do a whole bunch of stuff. You've been faithful to do it, but you need a break. The ironic thing here is that the break that Jesus and the disciples took, it, 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 they got a little bit of a break here, but it didn't last very long. In many respects, when you look at what the Scripture tells us, the boat ride that they took as they were aiming to head over to a more desolate place, that boat ride, you know, the time on the water ended up being the primary part of the break because more and more people pursued them and sought to be in Christ's presence as they were seeing what was going on here. And so they didn't get much of a break, but they started to get a little bit of one. But then the Scripture tells us when you get to verse 33, it says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now, when you look at, you know, the cool thing is we have multiple accounts of some of these events during Christ's earthly ministry. As you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us an overview from various vantage points of some of the things that were taking place here. And if you actually look at this same account from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus and the disciples, they went out by boat to a town called Bethsaida. They went to Bethsaida, it's in Luke chapter 9, but as we could see here in Mark's Gospel, the crowds, as Jesus and the disciples are going out to Bethsaida, the crowds don't want to lose access to Jesus. And so, as I'm trying to picture how this all works out in my mind, I'm imagining that the boat was possibly not that far from shore as they sailed, and as people recognized who was in that boat, large crowds start running on foot from town to town, village to village, following the boat, seeing where the boat was headed, and deciding, you know what, let's get to the shore of Bethsaida before the boat lands, because it looks like it's going to Bethsaida. Let's get to the shore before the boat does. And so uh, that's exactly what the people did. Thousands of people start flocking to that area, and Jesus and the disciples, they get out of the boat, Can you imagine the disciples in this moment, too, as they're thinking that they're about to get a rest? (laughs) They're like, wait, I thought, what what was this about, like, a desolate place we were going to? There are thousands of people. This is what counts as desolate? Uh, But Jesus gets out of the boat. The disciples get out of the boat. So all these people, they want to hear what he has to say and see what he's going to do. And as as he looks at this crowd of people who are just so eager to hear his teaching and eager to experience his healing... Scripture reveals to us something about the heart of Christ. He looked at these people and he just had compassion on them. His heart was just touched with just great compassion. He looked at that generation and thought, this is such a lost and confused group of people. 
and he had compassion on them. And Scripture says that he thought of them as being like sheep without a shepherd, wandering around, not, not knowing what to do. Sheep without a shepherd, that's also a very dangerous thing, isn't it? Because what it, you know, sheep without a shepherd, who's going to watch out for the wolves? Who's going to guide? Who's going to direct? Jesus looked at them in a very, with compassion, but also realized they were in a very perilous spot. And he felt compassion for them. He thought of them as sheep without a shepherd. His heart was touched to help them. And so you could see, to some degree, it seems like the plans get, get moderated here, a little bit altered. But when I read stuff like this in Scripture, I think this is a good portion of Scripture for us to pause on, especially if you've been a believer in Jesus Christ for a long period of time, and especially if you're troubled by some of the things that you see in present day. Now, I recognize that it could be almost like an understatement to say, if I, if I ask the question, does anything trouble you, you know, in present day? It'd be like the understatement of the year, right? Does anything trouble you But anything you see? I realize if you've been a believer for a while, it could be very easy to look at different things taking place culturally and feel troubled. But when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, I also think to myself, Jesus demonstrated exactly how we ought to go about things in the midst of our generation. And, I, and when, I, when I put on kind of like the, the, the glasses that allow me to see things from Christ's perspective, when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, I can't help but feel compassion for those who are lost and searching right now in the midst of our generation. You know, and I see a generation of people right now that's confused. It's utterly confused. Our generation is like sheep without a shepherd. You know, I, I, look at, I look at young people, and I think to myself, all right, I see a group of young people who get swept up in all kinds of unhealthy things because they don't actually know what they're doing. And I feel compassion for them. And I think sometimes, in some respects, it's easy to look at these things and say, you know, I feel anger toward that. But I don't actually think that's usually the best response. I think the best response is something uh, dialed back considerably from that. When Jesus looked at this confused group, it wasn't a, a group of people he just got angered with because they didn't understand what was going on around them. He, just, he saw them as people who needed guidance, who needed help. And I think of that when I look at this generation of young people that's confused because they're growing up in contexts that don't really have much of a a moral foundation or a spiritual anchor. They're influenced by all sorts of things. I mean, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really strange to see. I, how many times are you just out in the public, those of you that did not initially grow up, grow up, you know, those of you that did not grow up with a cell phone, and you look and you just watch how many people are just staring at a screen every waking minute, just staring at a screen. Like, I even notice that, like, when I'm speaking, too. You know, at times I'm, I'm like, I'm always proud of you. Those of you that stay with me and can resist picking up your phone and staring at that screen. But there are some people I don't, I'll never get through. They'll always just stare at the screen, right? Just stare at the screen. And I, I look at that, and I, I see a whole generation of, of people doing that, so highly influenced by everything that's coming across that screen, so conditioned by so many things. And it's just, it's just like constant reinforcement of all sorts of things. And I, I look at that and I think, you know what? I don't actually feel angry about it. I, I feel compassion toward it. 
it's one of those things that's a very, very much a reality of our day, our day right now, and, and I think as Christ looks at that, he would feel compassion for those that are lost, those that are confused, those that are find, trying to find some sort of, of anchor, something to pay attention to, or something to even pay attention to them. But I also, when I look at the older generations, I see something similar. You know what I see when I look at our older generations? I see a bunch of people that think if we just get the right political leaders in place that we'll have paradise on earth. So you have older generations who worship our politicians, and you have younger generations who worship whatever influencer comes across their phone, and you have older people that are confused, and you have younger people that are confused. And I think to myself, like, should I get angry about this? Should I spend my life angry about this? Or should we pray for both ends of the spectrum of this present generation? Because a generation essentially is whoever's living at the same time, right? So we're all living at the same time. So we should pray for those of us that are older, those of us that are younger, those of us that are somewhere in the middle, that we wouldn't go through life like sheep without a shepherd. That we wouldn't go through life completely confused, rudderless, anchorless. The truth is, until we were found by Christ... We were wandering through this world like sheep without a shepherd. And I'm so grateful for his compassion that he showed us in the midst of our confusion. We were confused, and he reached into our lives. And so here you have the disciples seeing Jesus respond this way to this group, and it's written down for our benefit. And I think it's written down for our benefit partially so we would copy it that that would be our mindset, that that would be our heart motivation, that we would look at other people and we would feel a sense of compassion for the anchorless or confused state that they might be presently in, knowing that it doesn't have to be that way forever. Christ can intervene and do something about this. When you look at verse 35, we see a little bit more about what takes place in this context, and it says, so you have this group of people, they're looking for him to give them guidance and help, but it says, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Now, can you just imagine that moment, you know, as Christ is saying, you give them something to eat. They're like, really? Like, you ask us to do impossible things. You give them something. I have no idea what kind of facial expression Jesus had when he would say these things to the the apostles. Part of my mind thinks he might have had a smirk. You give them something to eat. Let's see what they do. <laughs> and he said to them, or and they said to him, and I think their answer rings with some sarcasm. Okay, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give, give it to them to eat? There's thousands of people there, 200 denarii worth of bread. It'd be like 200 days of wages, right? So should, I, should we take like, like two-thirds of a, of, of a year of wages and just use it to go buy a whole bunch of bread to feed people in an evening? Like, is that what we're supposed to do? Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Go look. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by 50s. Now, again, at this point, the disciples are tired, right? I think they thought they were about to have a little bit more of a retreat than they got. You know, this desolate place that they're going to all of a sudden has thousands of people, but now they're also concerned about the logistics of handling such a large group of people because the day is drawing on, 
because they couldn't even offer them the basics of hospitality. What are the basics of hospitality? You're going to offer someone the basics of hospitality, a place to, li- a place to sleep, right, shelter, and something to eat. And they can't even offer any of this, and they're looking at thousands of people here, and they're trying to figure out, what are we supposed to do? And so the disciples are thinking, Jesus, before it gets mega, mega late here, send them away. If they're showing that they're prone to listen to what you have to say, tell them to go, that there'll be another teaching time another time. But now it's time to go. And, um, and, and we're told here in the Scripture that there were thousands of people. And by the way, when Scripture here is telling us that there are about 5,000, notice that it says that there's 5,000 men. It's, not, it's very likely not counting the women and children that are there. So the total amount of people that are there very easily could have been between 10,000 and 15,000 people. So if you have a total of 10 to 15,000 people, and they're saying, send them away. You can understand why the disciples are concerned. They're like, there's absolutely no way we're going to be able to feed these people. But Jesus didn't want to send them away. He had, he had other plans. So Jesus encouraged the disciples. He says, look, feed them anyway. And he tasks them with figuring out how they were going to do so. And he says, I want you to assess how much food you can gather up. See how much you could find. Just look around us here. See how much you could find and then get back to me. Now, when you look at the Gospel of John, when you look at chapter 6, verse 9, in in John chapter 6, it tells us that the only food that they could find was the lunch of a boy who had these, like, five round barley cakes and two fish. That's all they could find. Now, I don't know if somebody else in the crowd was holding out, you know, if there was an adult there that maybe had a, a snack with them or something like that, or brought his ancient Israeli Lunchables with him. You know, I don't know if anyone had something like that tucked away somewhere, but if they did, they weren't volunteering it. So the only food they actually are able to find is they go out and, and find it. And it was actually Andrew uh, who found it. He's like, hey, I, I found some, I, you know, this young boy offers it to Andrew, right? And, um, and he says, you know, I've got, I got these five loaves and I've got two fish. By the way, when I look at that, I'm also amazed because I think children, I, I think, I, I find it very interesting, first of all, to observe that it was a child that was willing to be generous with what he had. It was a child that was willing to be generous. I think it's very likely that, that, that in a crowd like that, somebody thought to bring a snack, right? There was somebody with some food that could have offered it that didn't, but it was a child who offers this. And I look at that and I think, all right, well, that's kind of interesting. But I also recognize this, and Scripture bears this out. Children are often great examples of faith. And this is yet another example of that in Scripture. They remind the rest of us of what it looks like to really trust God for our daily needs. Don't they? You know, when you see, when you see a child, when you experience life from a child's perspective, they remind us what it looks like to really trust God for our daily needs. And you look at what Jesus loves to do. He has a habit of taking whatever we entrust to Him by faith and multiplying it many, many, many times over. And that's exactly what he did with this boy's lunch. These five round barley loaves, these two fish, he multiplies it many, many times over. The Scripture tells us it goes like this in verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So again, 5,000 men, possibly 10,000 people, 15,000 people total. 
Uh, But the scripture here tells us in blessing the loaves and fish, Jesus begins breaking the loaves and dividing the fish so that they can be shared with this large group of people. I can imagine the disciples in the midst of all of this just thinking, how are we possibly going to feed this many people? And by the way, I don't know how you think this miracle took place. I used to think that as they were going around divvying out food from the baskets, that the baskets would just magically populate with a little more. And every time they reached in, there was like a little bit more in there and a little bit more in there. Now, obviously, I wasn't there to see it uh, firsthand, but I was studying some of the words that are used here this week and, um, and uh, just thinking about this a little bit more. And it seems very, very possible that this miracle may have taken place as Jesus was ripping the, the bread and as he's, as he's like dividing the fish. So he's, and if that's the case, if that's how it went, then it would have been Jesus, you know, breaking the pieces up, giving it to one disciple. He goes out and he serves a group of people, breaks pieces up, gives it to another, keeps breaking it up, and that the miracle keeps happening as it's happening in Jesus's hands, if that's the way that it took place, that it would, the, there would just constantly be enough, and they would come back and get a little bit more, and then go back, and there's constantly be enough, the miracle taking place in his hands. I'm, I'm inclined to think that that may be how that miracle took place, but either way, the food shows up. The food's there. It's miraculous. And by the way, this miracle is yet another thing authenticating who Christ is, his divine mission, his divine nature, his divine authority. And it's also one of multiple examples of God's miraculous provision that we're shown in the Scriptures, because you see this elsewhere. You see it in the book of Exodus as the Lord causes manna to fall from heaven to feed the people of ancient Israel. You see it in 1 Kings 17. You see it in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, you see multiple instances where the Lord causes food to just miraculously show up and, and, and multiply and be used for the benefit of somebody in great need. But here God's Word tells us that everyone ate and everybody was satisfied. They all ate, they all were satisfied, they all got some bread, they all got some fish, people ate until they were they were just completely full, and the Scripture tells us that there was food left over. But again, when you look at this, what do you think Jesus is trying to communicate through a miracle like this? What do you think He was trying to convey? What's the takeaway from something like this? Is it just that Jesus can make food miraculously appear? Well, that would be an accurate takeaway, but do you suppose there might be something a little more to this? I think one of the things that Jesus was trying to communicate through this miraculous act, is that he's the real source for sustenance. I think many people go through their lives pursuing what this world offers, thinking that somehow it's going to satisfy them. And when I think about some of the dumb things in my life that I've spent too much time on or chasing after only to get and then discover, nope, that doesn't satisfy really anything. And I think, you know what, I think most of us have that tendency to chase after the things that this world offers, thinking it's going to satisfy something that feels unsatisfied right now. And then you look at a portion of Scripture like this, and Jesus reveals to us that He's the real source for sustenance. Every time we eat from the world's table, what happens? We find ourselves hungry again just a short time later. Every time we eat from the world's buffet, we're hungry again. But real lasting sustenance, real lasting Uh, sustainment for our souls, it's actually found in Jesus. He alone can miraculously feed us in our nature, right? In our soul until we're full. 
He meets the needs of our deepest hungers. That's what he's trying to illustrate with this sort of thing. Think about the things that you and I hunger for, just as human beings on this planet. And our hungers are common. We hunger for purpose. Think we hunger for family. Think we hunger for a sense of belonging, a sense of mission, hope beyond our circumstances. We hunger for all of these things. I think we hunger for relief from pain. We hunger for the end of sorrow. We hunger for the restoration of relationships. We hunger for the end of war. I think we hunger for the restoration of all creation. I also think we hunger for an inheritance in his kingdom that can never be taken away. We hunger for all of these things, and the truth is there's only one place we're going to find that those hungers actually get satisfied, and that's in Jesus alone. No one or nothing else can truly meet those deeper level needs. And anything, if you're spending your life trying to meet any one of those needs through anything else other than Christ, you're picking something fallible to meet an ongoing need. You're picking something that has the chance to disappoint you and will disappoint you to meet something that has eternal consequence. Only Christ can meet those everlasting needs. Those things are only met in Him. Now, it's possible, particularly if you've grown up in the context of the church, it's possible that you may have heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 many times over the course of your life. You may have heard that before. I, I would assume many of us have. I've certainly heard it many times. But as many times as I've heard it, I have to admit that there, there were plenty of those times that I don't know that I was necessarily giving a whole lot of thought to what Jesus was trying to communicate through that miracle. I think I was observing the miracle, but not thinking about the deeper meaning. But the deeper meaning is this. He alone can satisfy the deeper longings of our soul, the deepest longings of our soul. And if we continue to look elsewhere, we're we're going to re- remain hungry, and we're going to be malnourished, because Jesus alone is the bread of life. And I want to finish with one, just one more verse of Scripture for us this morning. But Jesus said this in John chapter 6, related to this specific instance. It was in the context of this miracle taking place, but he made this comment. He said, Jesus, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I look at a portion of Scripture like that, and I'm so grateful for it because, again, I recognize that there are things that we hunger for in this world. There are things that we believe that we need, things that we think we have to have in order to be satisfied. But then we look at what Jesus says, and he says, if we have him, we have what we need. He is the bread of life. You and I can let every other ambition go, every other desire for the things of this world, we can let it all go. And if we have Christ, we have everything we need. The interesting thing is Jesus also tells us that if we seek first his kingdom, he's very mindful of the things that we need in our day-to-day life. He says all those things will be added to you as well. The idea that he gives us is seek him first in the midst of all circumstances, and he'll show us that he meets the deepest needs of our heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We're just so grateful that we get to look at a portion of Scripture like this and even observe a, a story of a miracle, an account of a miracle that 
many of us have been hearing about since we were just young children. And Lord, it's great to be able to look at this portion of Scripture and think about these things and just wonder with amazement what it must have been like for the people that were seeing these things firsthand. As they were experiencing this, they must have been amazed. Just must have been, well, like, what a gift to be able to see you do what you were doing face to face. Well, we're just so grateful for that. But, Father, we pray that as we observe what, what your son was accomplishing during the course of his earthly ministry, we pray that you'd help us to understand the point of what was being communicated. We know that there are many people in that crowd that thought that they had everything they needed once they got their belly full. They thought all it took was just some bread and fish, and that's really what they needed. And then your son made the point to make it clear that we need a lot more than just physical sustenance. We need spiritual life. We need to be spiritually reborn. We need the presence of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ in our day-to-day lives. Father, I I lift up anyone in this room, anyone in the hearing of my voice right now, that as of yet maybe has attempted to go through life seeking other things to satisfy their soul and then discovering that it leaves them feeling empty, whether it be worldly identities or whether it be worldly goods or prestige or the absence of conflict or whatever it may be. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would submit those idols over to you and recognize that their greatest need is for your Son, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the Prince of Peace, the one who ultimately sustains every aspect of our lives. So, Father, we come before you and we thank you for the reminders that you give to us from your word that this is indeed what we need. We need your Son. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who as of yet does not have him, that today would be the day that that relationship begins. And for those of us who have known you through your Son for some time, Lord, we pray that we would not drift toward the things of this world, thinking that the things of this world have the capacity to sustain us or to fill the voids, because they don't. We pray that we would be confident in your Son as well. Thank you, Father, for your blessings. Thank you for being present with us today. And thank you for guiding and directing our study of your Word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.